Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. James Crow is a partner of law firm Norton Rose Fulbright and one of the few lawyers who is equally as passionate about technology and all of its transformational potential as he is about the law. With a degree in computer science, majoring in artificial intelligence, in addition to his honours degree in law, James has over 25 years experience assisting companies in Australia and around the world with acquisitions, investments and joint ventures for strategically important technologies. James is an enthusiastic angel investor himself and co-founder of Scalata Ventures, Australia's first fully integrated seed investment program designed to help early stage companies prepare to scale and grow into significant, sustainable and global businesses. In addition to all of this, James is also committed to legal innovation and his award-winning work in this area has received global recognition by Harvard University, the US Association of Corporate Counsel and the Financial Times. While James recognises the importance of academic credentials, he reckons for those that are new to the startup technology scene, you can probably learn just as much from watching the hit comedy TV show, Silicon Valley. James, great to meet you. Thanks so much for making your time available. My pleasure, Catherine. I loved the way before we started recording, you said, oh, I feel like a bit of a fraud, you know, being a lawyer, because, you know, lawyers sometimes get a bad name when it comes to investing. But you're sort of uniquely qualified to help founders think about what might be in their future, given that that you've got a computer science degree and a law degree. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to study those two things? Wow. Okay. Well, look, I was always a math science guy. Law wasn't really in the frame. So I was fascinated with technology, fascinated with computers, used to code my own games and play them with the kids in the neighbourhood. Then I wasn't sure where I wanted to, to go, what you know, what I wanted to study, whether that was engineering, computer science, law, medicine. I, I was the first one in my family to go to university and I didn't really have any guidance on any of that. I was making it up as I went along and ended up going and doing science engineering combined course, but became quite interested in the law. And in many ways, there was parallels with computer science. It was all about structured thinking and problem solving and how do you break down a problem and, and, and sort of solve it. So lots of parallels there. So I ended up just having this kind of dual track of both of those degrees. And I think most of my career has been about how do I combine the law with that interest in technology? And at that time, venture capital wasn't really a thing in Australia and venture law wasn't. And I had to kind of just navigate my way through that. How do I combine these two sort of passions and interests in a way that was kind of fulfilling and rewarding? And it seems to have worked. 
I think one of your um, key interests in the computer science bit of your degree was artificial intelligence. And I suppose that's quite prescient because my guess is when you studied it, it was sort of science fiction and now it's, you know, reality. What's your observation of how we've come to understand the capability of that over time? Look, it was so different back then. What we studied in my AI major were spell checkers and speech recognition and things that we don't even call AI now. They've just kind of dropped out as, as kind of features of different kind of solutions. So it's been interesting to sort of see that kind of whole concept evolve over time and, and individual sort of products sort of drop out of it. And sometimes I feel like uh, a bit of a fraud saying I studied uh, AI at uni because it's moved on so far. But it's still an area that I, you know, really excites me. And even though the concept sort of evolves at time. You grew up here in Melbourne and went to uni here, but then it's, I think your first job was in the US. How did that come about? Yeah, well, my first job was actually here in Melbourne, but then I then I moved to the US. So I um, started out doing technology-related M&A here in Melbourne, Mallison's, and then decided I wanted to go to the US. And that was in the, the late 90s and the tech boom was happening. And I was in New York rather than on the West Coast, but it was still an incredibly exciting place to be to see all of that happening. So I spent sort of three years there. And again, that was just a continuation of trying to align my legal career with interesting tech development. So yeah, really enjoyed that, then came back to Australia and, and continued here. And are there some observations of differences between the US and Australia as it relates to the sort of technology landscape? At that time, definitely. Um, we just didn't quite have the the venture capital infrastructure sort of here. And even as a lawyer, I was always had to fight to get junior lawyers to be involved in the kind of the tech world. It was a lot of people were drawn to, you know, there was a mining boom and that was where the exciting work was. And, you know, I used to say that's just digging stuff out of the ground and there's so much more interesting going on. So, yeah, there was not the infrastructure here. And in some ways the interest has built over time as we've had our own tech successes with numerous companies uh, and, you know, Atlassian, Canva, and before that kind of, you know, Seek and, and, and others. And yeah, so the landscape has changed a lot over time and it was quite different back then. And as you say, you know, you've mentioned a couple of now well-known names, but, you know, as those companies, Canva and Atlassian, were emerging, they weren't in the public consciousness. Are there any transactions that you've sort of worked on over time that have been sort of emblematic of, of how the Australian landscape has matured and, and how we've integrated into the, the sort of global technology landscape? Yeah, and look, I wouldn't say any individual transaction, but there's the changing nature of the transactions I've worked on. Earlier on in my career, I did, it was all about technology acquisition. So it was acting for the big end of town, gobbling up tech companies. So it was all about founder exits, effectively. It was mostly for Telstra, but for other other big technology companies as well. So in some ways, my uh, interaction with founders started at, at the end of their journey. And then um, a lot of big corporates, including, including Telstra and others, started doing um, venture capital work. So there was an exposure to those kind of transactions. And the more experience I had dealing with founders, it was just really exciting to see their journey. And I just needed to find a way to work with more people like that. So that's how the evolution sort of continued. So it's, yeah, I wouldn't point to any individual transactions, but there has been um, over the course of my career, 
the nature of the transactions has evolved. And what about your personal investing alongside that? Because as you say, you rub up against founders who are so impressive and the problems they're solving are so exciting. Have you been deploying some of your own capital along the way? Yeah, so my very first investment as a junior lawyer was in um, computer share, which is one of the great Aussie tech success stories that we, we, we kind of forget about. So, and you know, obviously I did very well out of that. So that was an exciting start. And then there's been sort of angel investing along sort of along the way. I always found that it was a little difficult at particular points in my career where, where you're flat out on deal work to get the headspace to do angel investing, but I've really made space for that. And then and then obviously I, I was a partner at Three Hills for many, many years and took a tech sabbatical and went and worked at a startup and helped set up Scalata Ventures um, as an accelerator and venture capital fund and that released a lot more time than most of the investing has really been via my involvement with Scalata Ventures. So can you tell us a bit about Scalata Ventures, why you thought there was a gap that needed to be filled by Scalata and how that thesis has evolved over the last four or five years? I was working at Freehills and uh, for a number of reasons, I felt like I had unfinished business in the tech sector. I was really excited working with founders, wanted to find more opportunities to do that, ended up leaving and going to work with Matt Berryman at Unlocked, which was a very exciting journey, but in parallel setting up Scalata Ventures. And that was through some friends and contacts of mine who really saw a gap in the market. And, and some of them had a background at the Melbourne Accelerator program and had seen founders graduate from that. And then a lot of that support at the seed stage was undeveloped at that time. There was a, was a gap and, and some of the VC who had been active in that space had been successful and were writing bigger checks and had kind of moved along along the curve a bit. Uh, so we saw that as a real gap. And it's lucky enough to be working with people like Paul Little and, and Daryl Wade, who were very successful entrepreneurs in their own right and really wanted to give back and help the ecosystem fill that particular gap. So yeah, I was lucky enough to get involved as a member of the founding team there and we, we built um, Scalata to help seed stage founders and um, it's been going great so far. What do you look for when you make an angel investment? I've already kind of given given it away a bit. I get excited by interesting people who are doing exciting things so I can definitely get engaged with the, the sort of the big idea. Beyond that, it's really about, uh, I guess, founder capability and, and the capability of the co-founding team and, and that's just not domain expertise but it's also uh, kind of eq and energy and you know i've seen some founding teams fracture under pressure so just making sure that people can uh, have the interpersonal skills to navigate the ups and the downs of that journey so yeah they're probably the key things so it feels to me that lawyers are trained to to look for what's going to go wrong People who are excited about technology are all about the promise of what will go right. How do you manage that tension internally and still find a way to make investments? Look, I I guess in some ways I'm a bit schizophrenic. I can take off one hat and put on another one and think, think about things differently. I mean, as a lawyer, I probably, I'd say I'm quite commercial and, and not particularly risk averse, but that's with the qualification of for a lawyer outside of that, my involvement in venture, it, it probably does bring a 
particular lens to bear of I'm really interested in the big idea and excited by the big idea, but also have the ability to see downside risks as well. Um, you've been involved in really big transactions, as you say, you know, Telstra and some of those other big companies. And then, you know, through Scalata and your own angel investing, you've presumably been involved in really small transactions. What's the same and what's different about the, the size of a transaction and, and more than just the size, the sort of company stage? The biggest difference is that you you really can feel like you're moving the needle and making a difference on the smaller organisations. Really big companies and really big deals, the massive teams, lots of people on the inside and on the and external advising. Sometimes you don't plug directly into the CEO or the board, but with sort of growth stage companies or seed stage com- companies, you really anything you do for them, you feel like you are moving the needle and it's changing, it's changing things on a daily, weekly basis, and that's incredibly rewarding and sort of satisfying in terms of so that's what's different in terms of what's the same you know a lot of the deal structure is the same it's just on a smaller smaller or larger scale um so i guess having done that at the, for the big end of town you can't know what good looks like and and you can adapt that for earlier stage transactions and also it really helps with sort of founder exits to have done so much work on the other side on the acquisition side so you know where the trade buyer is coming from or you know what an IPO looks like or you know what a PE investors kind of want. So there's a lot that's the same in a legal sense, but the biggest difference is really the personal impact you have on the parties to that transaction. If you had a friend or family member that was coming to you with a great idea that you, that you thought really had legs and could, could be a globally relevant company, are there any sort of tips, either commercially or legally, that you would give them to say, you know, these are some of the things that might cause you problems down the track, do them properly now? Are there any sort of tips that you would give for, you know, someone with a good idea? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, other than from a commercial perspective, making sure you've got a good, you know, founding team and, and all those elements are, are right. But from a legal perspective, I see a lot of people really overcomplicate their cap table and that can cause real headaches down the track. So trying to keep it simple. Um, and, and is that trying to accommodate investor demands? What is the genesis of that overcomplication? It's exactly that, that smart people will try and find a way to make things work and they can engage with the complexity and they can find a path through it. But down the track, other investors coming in will look at it and go, hey, what's going on here? This is this is too hard. I can't I can't see what's what's happened. And all those things that made sense at the time can really cause headaches down the track. So can the cap table simple is one uh, one thing that And just pausing on that, is it better for someone because it's really hard for for founders when they're trying to raise capital, is it better to say to an investor, those terms are too complicated for where I'm at and I'm not going to take a check from you? unless you're happy to sign on to some pretty standard terms. That's my view. That's my view. And look, maybe making exceptions for a particular investor, but on nearly every occasion where I've seen people do that, it's caused difficulties down the track. So there's been a a cost to it down the track, and maybe on a net basis some of them have been worthwhile, but you will always have to think about when you do that, how is this going to play out down the track and what's it going to 
what complications and difficulties it's going to cause for me. Okay, so one is keep the cap table simple. What's What are the next ones? Securing your IP is always important. I mean, if I, probably the second thing I look at if I'm acting for a sort of venture capital or a trade, a trade buyer, just making sure that the IP has been properly secured. So your intellectual property, yep. Yeah, and look, that can, all sorts of things can go wrong there. That people are using contractors to build their IP and not getting getting that properly secured, or even things that are less obvious that sometimes founders have worked on the IP before the company has even been created, and then they create the company and they've forgotten to assign their IP to the company. So you can get a little, lots of little things can go wrong on that front, and then other than that. Just the compliance piece, depending on what the sector is, but if you're a fintech or a, um, doing something in the, in the medical space, just, you know there are regulated industries, and if your industry is regulated, just making sure you have a good understanding of that. But they're probably the three sort of key ones. And then there's probably as you grow, it's fine if you kind of scrappy and, and cut some corners early on, but as you grow, you know, you've got to sometimes fix some of those things. So the way of operating as a really sort of scrappy startup has to evolve over time. And as you take on investment, you need to start doing some of those things a bit better. So just knowing when it's the right time to spend a bit more money, spend a bit more resource on getting those things right. And things like contracts and terms and conditions and privacy policies and, and some of the sort of legal documentation does become important over time. So that's interesting to the extent that, you know, you've sort of said in terms of deal structuring, there's not a huge amount of difference between when you're big and when you're really small, but the cost of, of getting advice is quite different. How can you know that you're getting good advice when you're small and you don't have a big budget for some of that legal setup? Recommendations from other founders is probably one way. A lot of people who are quite getting more experience in the space, which is good, but you also need employees and advisors that can grow with you as a company so sometimes you know the people that can support you at one stage are fine uh, but you can outgrow them and you know a piece of advice I you know I was given or I uh, was given to a founder friend of mine was you know hire well and fire well get good people but also know when it's the time to to get someone else in to help so it doesn't directly answer your question but I think it's it's a matter of constantly evaluating the help you're getting, um, getting recommendations, probably other founders is probably a good source rather than just what you read on a, on a LinkedIn post um, would be my advice. And do you think it's one of the advantages of participating in a program like Scalata, for example, where, you know, my guess is, you know, one of the value adds, it's not just business planning or pitch or even the check that might be written. It's also, you know, here are the, people who can support your business that have been used multiple times by, by businesses at your stage. I think that's right. And it's right on a couple of levels. There's a whole venture support sort of program that Scalata rolls out, which covers a whole range of commercial, strategic, operational, legal, accounting, a range of support across a number of areas. And Milton Rose Fulbright, my firm, provides support to Scalata on, on a lot of those kind of legal points. So that's all important. But then you know, you've also got the board and the executives at, at Scalata, many of whom have come from very successful businesses and have very extensive networks and connections and can say, look, 
here's some support for you now, but this is what you're likely to need going forward as well based on our experience. So having that support and that guidance for the whole growth journey is really important. And you mentioned the board that you're on the board of a number of companies. How do you decide what boards you're going to join? My guess is there's lots of smaller companies who would love for you to join their board, but you've only got limited time and limited headspace. So what what do you look for in terms of joining the board? And then I suppose secondly, how do you make sure that your contribution is fit for purpose? Because my guess is that the sort of governance that's required at different stages of a company's life cycle, you know, are quite radically different. Yeah, so look, I have to think about how I use my time almost like how you invest your money it's like okay where am I going to where am I going to get involved and look at 10 personal connections are important personal relationships are really important I tend to only get involved whether that's on the board or the advisory board with people I know or the people have been recommended to me and the people I get on really well with like that that personal connection is important I tend to be you know, a pretty loyal person so once I'm in I'm all in so I want to make sure that you know that's going to work and then in terms of uh, my involvement the, the one really tricky issue of and I've mentioned it before of wearing two hats I can't give legal advice uh, in my role as a as a director um, I'm there to provide commercial strategic advice based on my knowledge of you know how various startups uh, and growth companies approach things and also how the big end of town will expect things to be done when it's time to exit so I don't give legal advice in that in in those roles and I'm pretty good at putting on one hat and taking you know putting on another one when it need be so yeah I'm at that sort of intersection of law and venture and you know I find it okay to manage but I do have to explain that to different companies that that's the way I operate. Has there been a experience that has been a setback or a failure that you've learnt a lot from that you can share? Yeah, look, I mean, I think one of the more disappointing episodes was obviously working with Matt at Unlocked, which I was incredibly excited about. And Matt's a great mate, we stay and we're very close. And just to get so close to a, a very successful IPO and then to have a company like Google intervene and really destroy that destroy that IPO and effectively destroy the company was extremely disappointing to say the least. Can you explain what Google changed that radically changed the value of Unlocked? Yeah, look, we had a single point of value with the Google ecosystem, I guess, and distribution of the app through the Google Store and supply of advertising inventory to the Unlocked, um, which was an ad tech app. So there were two there were two points where we were vulnerable and you know change in policy position from Google and really meant that both of those things were stopped over overnight. And that could have been managed perhaps if it had happened at a different point in the life cycle of the company, you know, perhaps after a raise or you know, you could have uh, you could have adjusted, but so close to an IPO, you do have um, a period of vulnerability there where um, you, it's all steam ahead and for the IPO, and then some, you get a shock like that, and it's very difficult to manage that in that context. So, look, that was that was one of the you know more disappointing um, aspects or events. But you know, as I said, you, you know, Matt's I've learned a lot from working with Matt in terms of resilience, energy, passion, the importance of personal relationships, sort of all of those things were 
you know, really important. And you've also learned that things can go wrong and having all of your eggs in one basket is both a high reward in terms of accelerating growth, but also high risk if something goes wrong. Other than that, look, I've probably, I've probably seen a few founding teams break under pressure. So one lesson is really just the importance of those interpersonal skills and, and the EQ and the resilience to deal with the ups and downs of the life of a founder. We've talked a bit about sort of founder resilience and the characters we're looking for in founders we want to invest in. We often also give advice to founders that you should be really clear on the sorts of people who are going to be investors. Do you have any advice for founders in terms of how they work out who the right investors for them might be? Look, I think there's obviously a temptation just to to chase the funding, but I would always be asking what does you know, what do these people bring to the table? How can they support me as a founder? Do I really, do I really like them? Do, is this a relationship that I'm going to value over the long term? Because it is a long term relationship. It's not transactional. I mean, the investment piece is transactional. But, you know, the actual documentation and making the investment, but the over time that that investment is a really a long-term relationship that will have its ups and downs. So looking for those, all of those things is important. Maybe someone who has a history in venture investing, whether that's angel investors or um, sort of VC, just so you can understand their, their track record and maybe speak to other founders just to make sure that that's something that's progressed well and that the support was there in, in key areas, whether that's assisting with networks, whether that's domain expertise, you know, in, in whatever dimension that help comes that, that it's that's been forthcoming. You know, people who've been involved in the venture community in Australia for a long time probably suggest that there's been a maturing of investor behaviour and a, a bit more of a standardisation in terms of, of how founders should expect to engage with investors. But are there any sort of investor behaviours that you would call out that you would say to, to founders, that's a red flag. If an investor is doing this, be really cautious or ask more questions or, or think twice. Look, I agree. There's been a standardisation over time, which has been great, whether that's, you know, the ABCO model documents or it's just the, the taking on board of US kind of practices, you know, and even some you know, changes in government sort of policy like the um, the ATO's um, startup concession for ESOP. So there's been different things that have happened that have allowed things to be more standardised. So I think anyone who's departing radically from those standards, that does raise a bit of a red flag, like well, either they don't know about them or they're departing for a reason, in which case I'd really want to understand what those reasons were. You see sometimes with sort of corporate venture capital that it's not a purely financial investment and there are other strategic goals they're seeking to achieve so just being alive to that is not really a red flag as such because i can it can you know really turbocharge your business if it's done well if they provide distribution or you know there can be reasons why it really works but just being alive to the fact that that's not a purely financial play there are there are other factors there and then if you're taking high net worth or family office money it's really the earlier point of just understanding how much uh, kind of venture investing they've done and how other founders have found found them on their cap table it's been you know a good experience or no yeah and just calling out i think you mentioned right at the start avcal has, has sort of some model documents so 
shareholder agreements and term sheets, which are free and available to anyone to download from their website. Is FCAL still their name or are they called something else these days? Uh, that we will have to check. I'll come back to that. It might be the Australian Investment Council, maybe. You're right, actually. Is there something that people are surprised to learn about you? Well, look, you know, people are always surprised that that, that I've got a degree in computer science and in, in AI, so that's, you know, that always comes with a bit of surprise. And I think that's one thing that I think some founders really like the fact that you're not, you're not scared by the, the, the tech or you, you're kind of interested in the tech and that's genuine and not sort of manufactured for the for appearance's sake. Look, probably, as I've said earlier, for a lawyer, I'm probably quite kind of commercial and practical and not particularly risk averse. And sometimes people, that takes people by surprise a little bit. Sometimes I'm not even the most risk averse person in the room. That's, I'm waving things through. It's like, oh, that's that's fine. We can we can do that. We can we can fix that up later. That will surprise people sometime. Sometimes, I guess. Oh, well, that's probably the best advertisement you could have um, given for your practice. You know, he's a lawyer who's risk tolerant that says yes sometimes. Yeah. In terms of advice you've received across the course of your career, is what's some advice you've received that's been really helpful for you? Oh wow. Um, Probably the best piece of advice I've ever received is, you know, back yourself, you know, which came from my younger brother many years ago. I don't know that he would even remember. But I think that's right, that, that, you know, and particularly when you see founders who put everything on the line to build great businesses that think, wow, look at that courage, look at what they're doing, just, okay, let's, everybody else can take a leaf out of that, that book and do more. And probably a related piece of advice came from a senior Telstra executive many years ago who I won't name, but on his retirement said he didn't have any decisions he regretted, but he had decisions that he hadn't made that he regretted. So always be thinking about what are the decisions you're not making? Are there things that you've just put aside or for one reason or another you're not engaging with it maybe you're scared maybe but really be thinking about those things because there could be something there that you later on in life you're kind of go wow I should have explored that further my guess is that it's hard to keep up to date with everything on both the legal side and the technology side are there books or podcasts or other resources that you use as your go-to's to stay engaged yeah it changes over time you know I've always been interested in the in the sort of the, the big picture and what's going on in the world of uh, geopolitics or of tech or whatever so there's plenty of podcasts just the usual ones that I listen to on you know whether it's the economist or the New York Times or Financial Times so there'll be a, a bunch on, on that uh, front that I listen to you know I because I have a lot of you know junior lawyers who are always asking me about oh gee how do we get how do we understand a little bit more about um, the startup world and venture capital so uh, you know a book I read many many years ago but it really resonated with me was um, really just the lean startup so you know I guess I read this because you're a lawyer you've been trained to do everything perfectly perfect is not always the right way and just read this and you will kind of understand that there's other ways of looking at things and approaching problems so that's another one 
and probably completely left field. The other one, other thing I often recommend is just watching watching Silicon Valley, which uh, again, at one point in my career, I think someone from Tells Revenge said, "Oh, you've got to see this. It's, it's it's not a comedy; it's a documentary." And so I often requote that to some people and go, "Look, just have a look. That'll it's a fun way to learn a little bit about the startup space." And again, that's mostly for lawyers who are coming at this without much sort of background. Yeah, it's interesting though because sometimes I think Silicon Valley is good to watch if you've come from, uh, say, public markets as an investor and you want to move into that sort of early stage space. It's like this is a whole other world. You know, this is this is not Wall Street. This is something completely different. Yeah, yeah. Anything that you would recommend that helps you stay productive? You're hiring good people and delegating is probably the key, particularly for someone like me who's interested in the big picture but then can really get involved in the detail as well. So I will have to sometimes check myself to sort of say, hey, someone else should do that. I'll just lean into the problem and really want to get into the nuts and bolts and I'll just have to sometimes go, somebody else can do that, that part of it. So I have to be sort of disciplined on that. You know, fortunately, one of the worst things about being a lawyer is you have to fill out six-minute timesheets. So it forces you to think quite carefully about what you're working on at any given time. So the, you know, even though that's um, not the most pleasant process, it also does make you quite efficient. So uh, you know, just thinking about is this something that you should be doing or that can you get somebody else to do that? And it's also just great founders who I see um, sometimes as the business grows finding it a little bit hard to let go of something you know it's their baby and what's made it successful so far is their involvement in every aspect of the business and just being able to let go of some of those parts and hire great people and get them to handle that as the as the business scales last question what when you look forward into the future what are you really excited and optimistic about well obviously i'm very excited about Scalata. That's going really well, and and I love our way we can support founders. And we're now you know, we've raised our first and second fund, and now our third and fourth won't be too far away. So that's you know that's great. But I'm look, I'm excited by tech. I still I'm still excited by tech. It's over the course of my career, I've seen you know mobile phones arrive, the internet arrive, um, the, the the web, just the social media. There's just so much that's happened over the course of sort of my career, that change I think is accelerating and it's changed changes the way we live, changes culture, um, changes the way we work. So I've always been excited about the impact of tech on society and on business and I remain excited about that. And probably just the the, the Australian tech you know sector we've mentioned that. But as it's as we've had these kind of real champions who've succeeded and as we've seen the venture community kind of grow and as we've seen more people look at the whole space as their kind of career and where you know where they'll they'll go to work for the rest of their career, you know it's great to see that whole community sort of thrive and and continue to do well. So I'm really excited about that as well. Well, it's fantastic to meet a lawyer who's part of creating the framework to enable that technology environment to flourish in Australia. And um, you know, hopefully, we see more lawyers who who come with your level of technical expertise and understanding as well. So um, it's great to spend some time with you. Thank you so much for your generosity. No problem. Thanks, Catherine. It's been fantastic. I find the investors and entrepreneurs I meet through Scale absolutely inspiring and learn so much from every conversation. If you feel the same and would like to get involved, visit us at www.scaleinvestors.com.au and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
Thanks to Buffy Gorilla for her amazing production and to the Scale team who make it all possible. Hope to see you again soon.